Well, go ahead and remain standing. Um, that worked out well. Thank you guys for doing that. Um, we're, uh, we're in the middle of our series, uh, Church Close. I really, really love this series because we're reframing what church is and redefining that. And man, church has gotten a bad rap. Uh, some of you, maybe you're here today and um, you're in that boat that you just you view church with a lot of skepticism and just, you know, a lot of like, man, church is all the same. Sometimes I agree with you. You know, some, you're right. Sometimes church is jacked up. But I don't think that's how God, as a matter of fact, I know that's not how God intended his church to operate. What we just witnessed is what God intended his church to operate, that we are a place of love and a place where we raise people up and they do great things for, for the world and for the kingdom of God. So we're in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. This is kind of our key scripture for the entire series. In fact, Pastor Brad has asked us to memorize Colossians 3, 12, and 14. How many of you guys have started memorizing Colossians 3? Yeah, me neither. So this week, <laughs> this week, we're going to start memorizing Colossians 3, 12, and 14. Amen? Wow. Some, all right. Some of you are like, I'm not saying amen. I'm not, I'm not lying in church. I'm not going to memorize it. I'm not going to say I'm going to. Okay. Um, so, but let's at least read this together. Can you guys do that with me? So Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14 says... Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Amen. You guys can be seated. I've got more scripture to read, but I thought, you know, everyone's feet probably getting tired, so I'm going to have mercy on you guys because we're talking about mercy today. Um, we're going to talk about the first one of those, mercy. So uh, the scripture we're going to look at that is one where Jesus illustrates this concept of mercy, and it's found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. So John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 uh, is where we're going to be at today. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, and it goes like this. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and says, all right, well, if the one who has never sinned Throw the first stone. You guys may have heard that expression before. That's where this comes from. Then he stood, stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So, Father, we come before you this morning, God. We're so grateful for your presence that's already been here in this place. And, God, we just ask that you would open up our hearts to hear from you today a word about mercy, God, to hear from you of what the church is supposed to look like and what we as the church are supposed to look like. God, help us to be the ones, God, to reframe faith, to reframe Christianity for a world, God, that looks at the church with skepticism and with doubt, God. We want to be the ones to make a difference. So speak to us today to help us to do that. And if you're ready to hear from God, can you give me a big amen? Amen. amen. All right. So don't you love it when people get what they deserve? 
I know I, I, know I do, you know, and uh, I, I thought of a million different ways to try to illustrate this, but I think the one that works out best for me is in movies. You know, when, when the bad guy or the, the antagonist or, you know, when they finally get what they deserve. Now, I'm a father of three young children, six, four, and two, and so I don't get to watch a whole lot of movies. You know, all the movies I get to watch um, are, you know, animated. So, you know, if we want to break down, you know, the implications of Moana or Trolls or Frozen or something like that, I'm your guy. I mean, just come see me. I mean, I can break it down for you. You know, I can sing the songs. Man, I, I know it. So I don't get a chance to watch um, a lot of non-animated movies, you know. So every once in a while, you know, it's like I get a chance to watch an adult. I probably shouldn't say I get a chance to watch an adult movie. Um, I, I get a chance to say I, I, I watch grown-up movies. And so, um, you know, not, not adult movies, not, not those. Uh, so you get a chance to watch a, a grown-up movie. Everyone. So, you know, when I get to a chance to finally do that, I go real highbrow. Man, I like to watch intellectual movies, stuff that just stimulates the brain, challenges the thought, really, you know, the kind of thing where you leave and you're just chewing on it for a few days, like, what was the symbolism? What was the implication, you know? And so um, one movie in particular that I love and I want to share with you today, it's the story of a man who has this God complex. And because of this God complex that he has and just his inc incredible narcissism, it causes this massive rift between his brother and his father and this man. It's a fascinating look at how this man spends his life self-promoting and because of that just manipulates and, and stabs people in the back and is just this awful person and, and it destroys his whole world. And there's one point in the movie, you just really, this guy, I mean, this guy was so complex, they needed a British actor to play him. That's how, that's how complex he was. I mean, British actors, I don't know what it is. You know, like, Britain's given the world three great gifts. It's given us tea, it's given us actors, and it gave us America, you know? And, and then, so British actors, I mean, it was the role so complex, they needed a British guy to play. And there's one point in the movie, now it's very subtle, but I thought it would be appropriate to, to bring it to you so you could just, we could all kind of, get on the same page about people getting what they deserve. It's very subtle, but there's a point in the movie that I'm getting ready to show you where this man finally gets all, all of his narcissism, all of his conniving and his scheming comes to an end, and it's at this point in the movie. So you guys check this clip out. Enough! You are all of you beneath me. I am a god, you dull creature, and I will not be bullied by that. Puny god. I mean, did you guys hear that wheeze at the end? So subtle, so British. Only, only British actor could bring that. So today we're in this series, Church Clothes, and we're going to be talking about mercy. And the reason why I spent this time talking about the movie clip is because we need a working definition of mercy today. And even though as much as we love it when people get what they deserve, the definition of mercy we're going to work with, this today, work with today is this idea that someone doesn't get what they deserve, that they deserve one thing, they deserve punishment, that they deserve judgment, that they deserve bad things, but instead of that, they receive mercy, that something good happens to them, even though they don't deserve it. Now, another uh, idea that we need to kind of lay some ground rules to frame our conversation today is that mercy and judgment 
are kind of on the opposite ends from each other. And these are going to be the two concepts we're going to be working with today. So we can't really have a conversation with, about mercy unless we also talk a little bit about judgment. And so we're going to be using those terms a lot today. But just know that we have to talk about judgment in order to have even the conversation about mercy because those two things are on the opposite ends of the scale from each other. And the final thing I want to mention today to kind of lay the framework, so this is stuff, just kind of tuck this in the back of your head during today's talk, is that uh, this conversation about mercy really relates to how the church relates to the world, especially when we talk about judgment, because some of you, as we go on today, you're going to be thinking about judgment in the context of the church. You're like, wait, I thought we were supposed to correct people. I thought we were supposed to bring correction and challenge and, and a level of judgment. And I want to say, yes, that's true, but that's within the context of the church and of the believers. And even more specifically than I'm going to sidebar here for just a second, even more specifically than that, the idea of judgment within believers does not happen outside of the context of relationship. And what I mean by that is if I don't know you, I don't have a right to speak into your life. I don't have a right to correct your behavior because there's not the foundation of relationship. And even within the body of Christ, relationship has to be the foundation for correction, for judgment, for rebuke. And even judgment's the wrong word then because once you get into relationship, if you see your brother or sister doing something wrong, you don't judge them. You want what's best for them. And so you come to them and correct them out of love. And so the, the, what we're going to be talking about today is not so much within the confines of the church, not so much within the confines of Christ-centered relationship. We're going to be talking about how the church relates to the world. You guys with me so far? Wow, like three of you. That's so scary. Okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to believe in faith that the rest of you are going to catch up here, so we're, we're just going to keep moving. Okay, so the first thing we have to understand about mercy is mercy at times can be very hard to give. Now, that's especially true when it's something that affects us. You know, if Something, if, if Danny has something bad happen to him and maybe he finds the guy that did it and, and I hear the story of, you know, he forgives the guy and he lets him go. I'm like, man, way to go, Danny. You're an awesome Christian. You know, like for me, I just had my car stolen and I'm not gonna lie, there was part of me, it's like, find the guy and throw the book at him. He has wronged me, you know? And it's like, I want, I need retribution. I need restoration, you know? And, and so there's a part of me because it happened to me, all of a sudden it becomes a lot harder to show mercy. And so when you're the one that's being wrong, mercy can all of a sudden be a lot harder to give. And another thing that I think makes mercy difficult to give out is, is we're culturally, it's kind of naturally wired for fairness. You know, we want things to be fair. We want people to pay the price for when they do something wrong. Like, I don't know about you, but, you know, if, if I'm driving along, you know, minding my own business, driving at an appropriate speed, and then someone comes along and is weaving in and out of traffic and driving like a maniac. And they're usually driving some luxury nameplate. So, you know, that way you can just make all kinds of assumptions about them. It's like, oh, Mr. Land Rover thinks he's better than the rest of us, you know. And, and that, but how many of you, I don't know if this has ever happened to you guys, but it happened to me once in my life, and I'll never forget it because it was so satisfying. I had a guy do that, you know, he weaved in and out and just driving like a jerk. It's like, ugh. And then like three miles ahead, there he was on the side of the road getting a visit from one of Oklahoma's finest. It was the best feeling. It was like Christmas came early. I was like, yeah, I wanted to get out and just, you know, it's like, yes, you got what you deserved because we like this idea of fairness. We like this idea that when you do something wrong, there's going to be consequences that happen to those actions. 
I think the last thing that makes mercy hard to give is that judgment, so we talked about, you know, mercy, the other side of mercy is judgment. Judgment puts us in a position of power. When we get to cast judgment on people, all of a sudden now, and judgment by its very definition, by its very nature, puts us in a position of power. Now, we're the ones that get to decide the morality of the situation. We're the ones that get to stand on the side of right versus wrong. We're the ones that get to look down. They're wrong. I'm right. I can't believe they live like that. I would never do that. I can't believe they would say these things. I would never do that. And so by casting judgment, by saying, look at that, look how godless those people, look, how, look at this, look at that, and, and all of a sudden now we become in a place of, of power, of moral superiority, because judgment by its nature gives us that feeling of like, I am doing the right thing. And I think what's, what's sad is we have this conversation about the church is that the church in general has become known not as a place of mercy, but as a place of judgment. And what do you hear people who are far from God, maybe some of your friends or family members, when they hear church, they often say, those Christians are so judgmental. So judgmental. And if you say, well, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Just think about if you were not a Christ follower, if you were not you know, in this rhythm of going to church and around people who love God, around genuine Christians, and you thought about the church, what would the church's perception and general attitude be towards issues like abortion? Towards issues like homosexuality? Towards people of other religion? Towards people of different socioeconomic status than them? If they don't look like me, if they don't smell like me, if they don't come from the same neighborhood, as me. Do you, has the church been a place where we've opened people with mercy and with arms wide in? Have, have we been a place of judgment? You have to clean up before you come here. You have to start looking like us before you can be in our clique, before you can be in our club. And it's real scary that, that the church is, is known this way because, man, this is not how Jesus intended us to live. And I, I, what I love about core church, you know, taking the conversation down a little what I love about core church is that we are a place of mercy. And we are a place where we are welcoming for people to come in and experience the hope, healing, peace, and purpose of Jesus. But it's good for us to have this conversation, even though we as a church do really well at this, because it only takes one of us to screw the whole thing up. It only takes one of us when a guest comes in or someone comes in that, that looks different or behaves different, and we say one thing in an attitude of judgment, then all of a sudden, man, that's just like every other church I've been to. All those Christians, they're all the same. They're all, it only takes one of us. And so it's good for us to have this conversation again because we need to be constantly reminded that we have to be a place in the people, a mercy. Now, some of you I can feel are pushing back on me right now because you're like, wait a minute, time out, Daniel. Aren't we supposed to call sin a sin? Aren't we supposed to be the city on a hill, voice crying in the wilderness, light that shines in the darkness? Aren't we supposed to be the one to expose and reveal the sin of the world. Well, today I want, I, want, I want to address that. I want to look at that as we look at this story of Jesus found in John chapter 8. Because I want to see how Jesus dealt with this situation. Because the story that, that we read is one where Jesus has to find the balance between judgment and mercy. Jesus has to find the balance between judgment and mercy. So how does he do it? And then what lessons can we apply to our life because of that? So let's dive into the story. Once again, it's found in John chapter 8. And Jesus is here, and he's, he's um, coming in. Let's just pick it up in verse 1. Uh, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, 
he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. So Jesus is having church, right? Just like we're doing right now, people are starting to gather. He's preaching just like I am now. He's bringing the word. And then all of a sudden, he's interrupted by the Pharisees who bring in this woman caught in the act of adultery. Let's see what the Pharisees say here in verse 4. Say, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? So here we see the Pharisees bringing in this woman caught in adultery, and they throw her down in front of the church, in front of the congregation, in front of Jesus. She was guilty. She was caught in the act, and they throw her down, and they are ready to pass judgment. They have stones in hand, and they are standing in a place of judgment over this woman, getting ready to pass the ultimate consequence, to pass judgment on her. The law said that she deserved death because of what she had done. And, you know, I think it's so easy for us to pass judgment on people when they do something wrong. It's easy for us to do exactly what these Pharisees did, and and we align ourselves, and we get ready to pass judgment on people when they do something that we think is wrong or we would consider stupid. And, you know, oftentimes something like that disguises itself by saying something like, man, it serves them right. Serves them right, you know, a couple examples to help us uh, illustrate this. So if you're a Thunder fan, when, when KD left, you know, it, it was awful. And so recently, you know, the, the NBA playoffs start and KD got hurt. Kevin Durant got hurt and he had to miss playoff games. And Thunder fans are like, serves him right. Shouldn't have left. Shouldn't have left Russ. You know, shouldn't have left us. No wonder Russell Westbrook has to jack up 100 shots a game. Kevin Durant left. What else is he supposed to do? Serves him right getting hurt. And so we, you know, it's like we pass judgment on his decision. You know, for some of us, uh, maybe you're, you're in school or, or you're, you're going to school and, and you know, you, you have this kind of rivalry that goes with other people. It's like, oh, you, you didn't get a very good ACT score? Well, you go to Bixby, so it kind of serves you right. You know, or you, you go to Jinx, it kind of serves you right. Oh, you didn't get a good job? Oh, it's because you went to OU or OSU. So yeah, you're kind of reaping the consequences of what you sowed there. Um, you know, for some of you, uh, it, it's maybe, maybe you've had this happen. Maybe you've had an ex or someone that you just really had a thing for in high school or in college or earlier, and, and they treated you bad, or maybe they didn't give you the time of day. You happen to stumble across them on Facebook or Instagram, and they got fat. <laughs> and you think to yourself, serves them right. Sir, they missed out on this, serves them right. Sadly, though, I think this has been what the church has done, is we stand over a world in judgment, pointing out its sins. Serves you right, world. Serves you right. And, you know, some examples of that for, for how the church has done this. So people, this, this is people in the church, now I'm talking about people in the church at one point thought HIV was God's punishment for homosexuality. Serves you right. Serves you right for living that way. Look at that. People in the church thought that the Holocaust, let's talk about the church. People in the church thought the Holocaust was God's punishment for the Jewish people. Serves you right. Serves you right. Crucifying Jesus. Serves you right. We stood over the world in a place of judgment. Now, I will grant you, those are very extreme examples. I don't think most of us here, rational people, would fall into a camp like that. But 
I do think that we have a tendency to do this even without realizing it, that how do we view people that are of a different socioeconomic status than us? If you look at someone who's on the street, do you look at them with compassion or do you think, well, they're probably getting what they deserve? They've probably made a lot of bad life decisions that have put them there, and so they're reaping what they've sown. It probably serves them right that they're there. When you look at someone who's an addict or, or someone that, that is really struggling, do you, is there compassion or is there a little bit of, well, it serves them right for being there. They made their choices. They made their bed. It's time for them to sleep. And if you look for someone that's caught up in working in the sex industry or caught up working, you know, dealing or whatever the case, that, that, or do we have compassion? Or do we say, that serves you right for being there. People that are uh, of different religions, is there compassion or is there, ah, serves you right. You get what you deserve. I think the church has been far too guilty of dragging a broken world before God, just like these Pharisees are dragging a broken world before God, standing over it in judgment, stone in hand, standing over God, look at their movies. God, look at their movies. Harry Potter, God, is an abomination. You know, 50 shades of sin, God. Look at, their, look at how lost the world is, God. God, listen to their music. Nicki Minaj, God, I just, I cannot believe what my children are listening to today. God, look at their music. God, look at their immorality. Look at the magazine stands. God, just, I cannot believe what people are doing nowadays. God, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I don't associate with that. Thank God I've been saved and I don't do that. Without realizing that a subtle self-righteousness creeps in, a subtle judge mentality creeps in where we're standing over a broken world, stone in hand, dragging it before God, saying, God, look at them. God, they're so messed up. God, I'm so thankful I'm not like that. Instead of being a place of mercy, the church becomes a place of judgment. So what does Jesus do? What did Jesus do in this situation? Well, we pick it up in verse 6. He says, they, the Pharisees, were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust, with his finger. Now, if I were Jesus, I probably would have written in the dust with my middle finger. <laughs> but, you know, so, so if you've been in church for any period of time, you've heard this passage, and every preacher that's done this passage always does the, uh, what, what did Jesus write in the dirt thing? And uh, Pastor Eric was telling me that someone actually wrote an entire book about what they guess Jesus wrote in the dirt. Like, they're just making it up. You know, just like, well, I, Jesus could have written this, and Jesus could have written And I'm like, that is so lame, this whole trying to figure out what Jesus wrote in the dirt thing. I just, I cannot believe it. So here's what I think Jesus wrote in the dirt, guys. <laughs> Not going to do that. But, but here's the picture I want you to get of this. If you don't pay attention to anything else, I just want you to tune in for the next few minutes here. And this is what I want you to, to walk out of here, just, just getting, getting this picture. So here are the Pharisees. They've been tracking this woman. Maybe they had heard the rumors about her infidelity and about her indiscretions. Maybe a friend of a friend had told them. So they've been tracking this woman, waiting for the right time, waiting for her to screw up, waiting for her to mess up. And finally, maybe they get the signal or one of them lets them know that, hey, it's going down right now. And so they go. And the Bible says she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, we're all adults here, so you know what it means when she was caught in the act of adultery. And just imagine, here she is, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these teachers of the law and these Pharisees barge in to this bedroom and drag this woman. Maybe she has time just to grab a bedsheet as they drag her out and they take her to the church. 
And they take her to church and they throw her down, naked, ashamed, disgraced in front of Jesus and in front of the entire congregation. And they say, Jesus, this woman deserves to die. She deserves judgment. She has broken the law. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? How are you going to make this fair? Jesus, how is she going to get what she deserves? Jesus, the law says she deserves to die. So Jesus, what are you going to do? Because all there is left to do now is to pass judgment. All there is left to do now is say the word, and this woman dies, and she receives what she deserves because she broke the law. But Get this, church, get this. Everyone, get this. Look at what Jesus did. While the Pharisees stood around this woman in a position of judgment, ready to cast stones, Jesus stooped down next to her, and he got on her level, and he got in the dirt with her, and the mercy of God covered this broken woman's sin and shame. He got down to church. I want to tell you something. I believe our world is desperately looking for the people of God to stop standing in a position of judgment and start taking the posture of mercy. The posture of mercy is that I get down with someone who's in the dirt and with someone who's in the dust. And I'm there with them. And I get down on their level and I get to know their story and I get to hear what's going on in their life, and I'm taking that posture of mercy because that's what Jesus did. While everyone else stood to judge, Jesus stooped down and showed her mercy. So some of you are thinking, you know, but, but what about the dirt? What about the dirt? And, and I, think, I think it's actually really cool that, that John doesn't record what Jesus wrote in that dirt with that woman because I think what he wrote in the dirt with that woman was just between him and just between her. And I really believe that God's plan is to stoop down and to write a story in the dirt of each one of our hearts that's individual for you and for me. Because your story is not your story, it's not your story, it's not your story. All of us have different stories. All of us came to Christ in different ways. All of us have received his mercy slightly differently. And Jesus wants to come down and write a story in the dirt of our heart that's just between you and him. That's just between you. And this is why, church, it's really, really important and really, really dangerous for us to make broad, sweeping generalizations about large groups of people. Because every person is an individual. Every story is different. Every circumstance is different. Every sin happens in a different way. And if we just start painting people in a broad swath, every person that does this is this. Every Republican is this. Every Democrat is this. Every person who's had an abortion is this. Every person who, you know, is gay is this. Every Muslim is this. If we start painting people with broad brushes, what happens is we lose the posture of mercy and we assume the position of judgment because we start to dehumanize people. We start to not account for people's story. We, instead of caring about their story, instead of caring about them as individuals, we look at people as classes, of people in church, that's dangerous. That's dangerous for us because that's not what Jesus did. Jesus stooped down. He wrote an individual story in the dirt, and that's what he wants to do for you and me. He wants to stoop down and write a story in the dirt of our heart that's just for us. And when we do that, when we begin to be this way, man, it changes the world and that changes us. So uh, my wife has this uh, friend uh, that she went to high school with. His name's Levon, 
And uh, she found on Facebook, LaVon was just having some really difficult times. And so I come to find out, you know, LaVon's basically homeless, kind of living uh, in and out of hotels. And um, we just really felt God telling us to have mercy on him. And so, you know, we've rallied our small group and things like that. We've, we've got him groceries and got him a bike and things. And um, LaVon's not someone that I typically, just, you know, full disclosure, w- would have naturally had mercy on, you know? He's a, he's a large black man with a criminal past, and just kind of, just kind of, real talk, just on the surface, you're like, well, you probably, you probably are in your situation because of the choices you've made. Some of his situation, yes, is because of the choices he's made. But because I've gotten to know his story, I've also found out he lost his infant son when his, when his son was five months old. Because of that, he had to take time off of work to be there for his family, and because of that, his work let him go, and that his life spiraled out of control, which is why he wasn't able to find jobs, and even the jobs he could find, he didn't make any money on because he had all this back child support that he had to pay. And, and so instead of having the posture of judgment over him, that position of judgment, all of a sudden now, because we got in the dirt with him, because we stooped down and said, man, what's going on? It, it, it changed him, but, but man, it's changing me. And that now, I, I, know, I know his story, and instead of judgment, I want to show mercy. And so this is why the, the, the posture of mercy is so important. So it's still hard for us to wrestle that, though, with the, the just, the idea of, wait, isn't God just? Isn't, isn't he supposed to be fair? Like, wh- what about that? Maybe some of you are having a real hard time letting that go. It's like, how can he let people just get away with things? And in verse 7 and 8, the Pharisees are asking the same thing. Those they, the Pharisees, kept demanding an answer. Jesus, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to make this fair? She has to pay for what she's done. And so Jesus stands up again and says, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. I want to give you a couple of things about how we as a church can be a people of mercy. See, because as the Pharisees demanded an answer, Jesus reminded them of their need for mercy. And so church, we have to understand this, that mercy starts by remembering how much mercy we've been shown. Mercy starts by remembering how much mercy we've been shown. Because the truth of the matter is, church, at one time or another, all of us were this woman. All of us were this woman. All of us at one point, we've been caught in our sin. We've been caught in our shame. Maybe it wasn't adultery, but maybe it was lust. Maybe it was lying. Maybe it was anger. It was gossip. Maybe it was stealing. Maybe it was an addiction you couldn't break. Whatever it is, that we all recognize at one point I was in desperate need of mercy. No matter how good you are, you know that you're not good enough. No matter how much you try to do right, you know that you keep messing up and you know how much you need God's mercy. And mercy starts by remembering how much I need his mercy, how much I'm going to need his mercy. I got news for us, guys. No no one's going to bat a thousand when you leave here. All of us are going to mess up again at some point. We're all going to need mercy again. And when I remember how much mercy I've been shown, then all of a sudden it's a lot easier to extend that mercy to people far from God. It's easier to extend that because, man, there but for the grace of God. I remember I was this close. I was this close. So you know by the mercy you've been shown that allows you to show mercy to others. In verse 9, it says, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So all of the accusers began to slip away one by one until only Jesus was left. And I think it's interesting here because Jesus was the only one qualified to pass judgment on this woman. 
all of the other ones, they realize, I don't, I'm not in a position where I can do that because I've messed up too. And so mercy remembers that judgment belongs to God. Mercy remembers that judgment belongs to God. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 addresses this. There's an issue going on with the church, and he says, look, it's not my job to judge unbelievers. It's not my job to judge those outside of the church. My job is to focus on what happens on the inside of the church. And I think it's important for the church to remember that. Man, it's not our job to judge the world. That is God's job. Our job as followers of Christ is to show mercy. Our job as followers of Jesus is to put on that mercy and to show mercy, to assume that posture of mercy with the world. That's what he calls us to. See, it's hard because this flies in the face of our ideas of fairness. This woman that committed adultery, yes, Jesus showed her mercy, but man, you can imagine that there was a wife or a husband somewhere that was hoping she was going to get the death penalty because she had destroyed their family. She had train wrecked a marriage. She had broken up a household. And someone out there said, it's not fair that she gets mercy. She deserves to die. But Jesus was more interested in restoration than retribution. He was more interested in restoring this woman than he was in retribution, and that she got what she deserves. And the truth of the matter is, church, there will come a day when all the wrongs will be made right. There will come a day when justice will fully win out. There will come a day when every, every thing that you know, has, has done you wrong will, will be fully healed. But I got news for you, that day is not on this side of eternity. And our job on this side of eternity is to lay down our life for others. I'm gonna ask the band to uh, come back up so I want, I want you to get a picture of what happens when we extend this kind of mercy. In verse 10, it says, Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus stoops down next to this woman in a posture of mercy, but he does not leave her in the dirt. When the accusers go, he stands up with this woman, raising her to new life again. And the mercy of Jesus restores this woman back into right standing with God. And church, this is the story of the cross. This is the story of Jesus because God could have looked at every one of us in this room and he could have looked at us just in a position of judgment. He could have looked at us stone in hand, ready to destroy us for the wrong that we have done. And he would have been absolutely right in doing so. He would have been absolutely justified because we would have gotten what we deserved. We broke his laws. We broke his commandments. We've fallen short. But instead of standing over us in judgment, some of you, you have that image of God that he's standing over you ready to smite you at any moment. But I want to tell you that's not who God is. Who God is is God looked at us and instead of judgment, he had compassion. And he sent his son Jesus to stoop down into the dirt of human existence and write his story in the dirt of our hearts. He would write his story for you and for you and for me and say, I forgive you, I love you. I'm not gonna give you what you deserve, but I'm gonna give you mercy. I'm gonna extend you mercy, not so that you can stay in the dirt, not so that you can look that way forever, but so that I can lift you up again into new life, into wholeness, and into restoration. Church, this is 
the God that we serve.